Many of you may have not ever picked up a Bible commentary before. Um, Bible commentaries are written. They're, some are on the whole Bible. Some are on just books of the Bible. Uh, Bible commentaries come in various lengths and sizes. Written by scholars who devote an entire lifetime to maybe one particular book of the Bible. A scholar who spends his entire academic career studying the book of Matthew, for example, or the book of Genesis. And they write extensively. There are publishers uh, for Bible commentaries for conservatives and Bible commentaries for liberals. There's Bible commentaries for Protestants and Bible commentaries for Catholics. There is a commentary on every single word of the Bible. And fascinatingly, some commentaries, um, boy, they move through patches, passages quite quickly. They, they, uh, they, they cover. So, for example, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, there's a few comments on them. But well, what I find fascinating is, is when the Bible, not the commentary, but the Bible, uh, speaks to a particular issue of cultural significance, the commentaries tend to get quite lengthy. So, for example, one page was devoted to last week's text, but this week's text, three to four, five, maybe even ten pages devoted to these two verses because they tend to cause division because they're an issue in our culture. Divorce is obviously an issue in our culture. Uh, since the passages of no-fault divorce laws here in America, uh, divorce has become a contentious issue. And it has been in the church. If you've been around church for many, many years, you know that divorce is always an issue that comes up in the life of churches. Whether it be because churches just sort of brush divorce away as insignificant, or because they take a hard line with it and treat anyone who's been divorced as some pariah, as someone that needs to be removed and is outside the gospel of Jesus Christ. Clearly, this is a particular issue for us to think about this morning and for us to give a whole sermon to. And you might think this morning, look, I'm not married or, you know, my spouse has passed away or I don't plan to be married. And you might think, you know, this isn't for me. Brothers and sisters, I just want to remind you this morning, as I do on other passages, just because it doesn't have a direct application to your life doesn't mean it doesn't apply. You see, we're a family. Uh, we're, we're in a covenantal community. And, and as a society outside of the local church, we want a well-ordered society. And no society can be well-ordered if it seeks to undermine marriage and the family. You wonder why we have so many societal problems is because fundamentally we have a family problem. And in the local church, we, each of us, have a responsibility to affirm the whole counsel of God's word, not just the passages that have particular application to our lives. And so each one of us, regardless of where we are, wherever we find ourselves providentially in life, we want to affirm what the Bible teaches. We want to understand that we may be in a context where we need to counsel a brother or sister in Christ and encourage them in the word in this particular context of marriage in the family. And so this morning, we want to think together about this passage and understand that Jesus is calling his church to live a distinct life 
to be, as we saw a few weeks ago, salt and light in the midst of a spiritually and moral dark world. We want to be light to God's people. And so Matthew chapter 5, invite you to turn there if you've not already made your way there. We're going to consider these two verses this morning. We're going to seek to understand what does the Bible teach about marriage and the family, about remarriage and divorce. So Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31, Jesus here is speaking. It was said, whoever divorces his wife, Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, clearly, as we read this, it's quite straightforward, the meaning of the text. Jesus here is putting forward just some clear teaching about uh, divorce. But, but for us to properly understand this, we need to get behind and understand what is it that Jesus is really confronting here? What is it that Jesus is really pressing in on here? Before we do that, we want to understand, as we read earlier, or you, had, you heard read, that marriage is the covenantal commitment between one woman and one man for a lifetime. Now, you might, you might think, my goodness gracious, uh, that's so simple and straightforward. But this world seems to be so confused on that. The very fact that we have to say between one man and one woman indicates how culturally confused we are. We can't say between two people anymore. We have to affirm maybe even biologically DNA. Your, your DNA is that you are a man and your DNA is that you are a woman in a morally confused world. And we understand the Bible teaches that only in the case of persistent sexual immorality or abandonment does one have the ground for divorce and remarriage. And friends, that runs right in the face of no-fault divorce laws. It runs right in the face of the easy leaving mentality of so many, the, the quick abandonment of covenantal commitment. We've we've become so accustomed to breaking our word till death do us part, right? We're so quick to affirm that, but yet so quick to remove that because I fell out of love. And so the purpose of this time is to really heed Jesus' warning concerning God's design. To affirm, this is what God designed. Do we fall short in that? Yes. Have we? Yes. But no less do we want to affirm what God is teaching here and seek Jesus and to seek God's will. And so Jesus here really gives three aspects on this conversation of divorce. But I want to back it up a little bit and be broad. First, we see that Jesus here is upholding, upholding the sanctity of marriage against powerful cultural forces. What Jesus is confronting here in this text is a powerful cultural force in his day. No, no, no less powerful than in our own day. That is an understanding that marriage could quickly be dissolved for any reason. As a reminder, uh, marriage is not an ordinance after the fall, but it is a creation ordinance. It is 
basic to who you are and who we are as human beings. God said in Genesis chapter 2 that, that marriage is a one flesh union. It's a giving of the whole self for a whole lifetime. This is what the Bible affirms from Genesis to Revelation. It never changes its mind. It never modernizes uh, its understanding of marriage. It is a covenantal commitment for a lifetime. But what is it that Jesus is addressing here? Notice what he says in verse 31. You, it was said also, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. What Jesus is referring to is just a, a small little aspect to the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is wrapping up a few little loose ends in the law and applying some principles. And in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 24, in verse 1, Moses writes, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he finds no favor in his eyes, if she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of the house. In other words, Moses allowed for divorce for some indecency. And the debate in Jesus' day centered around that phrase, indecency. What indecency? So later in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 19, uh, in verses 1 through 10, uh, one of the religious leaders confronts Jesus and says, Jesus, Moses said that we could divorce um, for any reason. And Jesus says, no, that's not what Moses said. In fact, the reason Moses gave you that was because of your hard-heartedness, not because it was God's design for marriage and the family. You see, at the time, there was two schools of thought. There was two commentaries, a liberal commentary on that text and a more conservative commentary. And the conservatives during that time taught that a man may not divorce his wife unless he had, she was found to be immoral, sexually immoral. That is, in other words, she had an affair because he found something indecent in her. But the liberal camp, the, the, the Hillel, uh, taught that a, a husband could divorce his wife for any reason. For example, uh, Rabbi Habakkuk says, even if he found another fairer than she, he could divorce her. For a spoiled meal, uh, a, a bad dinner, he could, that would be sufficient reason to divorce his wife. And so what Jesus is confronting here was a practice that undermined marriage and destroyed the family. And what we must understand is we must not understand or confuse, misunderstand or confuse concession for permission. You see, God was seeking to regulate divorce to protect the women from these men that would just quickly on a whim put them away. It was to protect her from a hasty divorce. You see, culturally speaking, it's very different than our day and age, right? But not unlike it. In that, it, is, it would have been totally impossible for a woman to survive on her own. It would have been unheard of for a woman to be able to go get a job. There were jobs that a, a woman would do, and they weren't the decent kind of jobs that 
most naturally what would have happened if she would have been divorced was to go back and live with her parents in, in, in shame. You see, they were using God's word for personal gain. They were finding loopholes to promote their sin. Men were twisting what God had taught in this sort of uh, giving allowance for divorce and understanding that sometimes uh, marriage covenants are broken because of the one flesh union is broken. And they were using God's word as some sort of proof text. And brothers and sisters, we tend to do the same. We tend to find, hey, where can I skate around God's word? But we must affirm that Jesus is quite clear in this particular passage. In fact, it's only in Matthew's gospel that we find this exception clause. Jesus was so emphatically clear. He was so willing to run up against the cultural practices of the day to affirm God's design for marriage. He is clear that divorce is not God's design, nor is it a part of God's purposes for human flourishing. No one goes through divorce and says, I've won. No one. And particularly children. Children are always the losers in divorce. So many of our divorces are motivated by sin and not obedience to God's word. So many in the wider culture are motivated more by that sort of, I fell out of love with them attitude. Brothers and sisters, what we want to affirm And what we want to be explicit with is that Jesus died for the sin of divorce. We we can't miss the fact that that sin is sin. We've got to call it sin, all right? But we need to understand that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. What if if we've been involved in an unbiblical divorce? What do we do? Well, we repent. We turn to Jesus. We seek to follow his will for our lives. What if this morning you're considering divorce? We want to understand and and reconcile to the fact that to disobey a holy and righteous God does not give us justification. We should not find excuses for abandoning God's purpose for our life. We want as Christians to uphold and affirm that divorce is not the first option on anyone's table. We need to understand as Christians, we want to work towards reconciliation and repair, not blow things up. But Jesus here is prohibiting one particular case. He says that divorce is only permissible in extreme cases. Doesn't he say that? Look there at verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except, there's the exception clause, on the ground of sexual immorality. The word there that Jesus uses is pornoneia, the Greek word that that really covers a whole host of sexual sin. Um, Sexual immorality, not merely adultery, but, but persistent sexual immorality on the part of the spouse. Now, the perspective of Jesus is teaching here. He's really going hard after men. All right. But we understand that. Uh, it takes two to tango and that often it could be the other side of the equation as well. But here in this particular case, he's going after men who are quickly abandoning their wives for any reason. He says, listen, the only reason you have is if your wife commits adultery. That's it. And he affirms that if you abandon her for any other reason, 
then you make her, you force her to commit adultery again because it would have been unheard of for that woman not to remarry. And Jesus here is, is expl- explicitly teaching us and affirming to us that marriage must be a commitment for a lifetime. Now, does that mean, to be clear, does that mean that Jesus is saying, okay, if my wife cheats on me, then I must get a divorce? That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, if you are considering divorce, the only context for that is sexual immorality. Paul will teach on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and include not only sexual immorality, but abandonment. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, Paul writes, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. Now he doesn't mean that it's sort of not authoritative. What he means is that Jesus didn't teach on this particular subject. But it's still inspired. He says, The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife, but the unbelieving partner separates. Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, the only other exception would be for abandonment. Spiritual abandonment, physical. So abuse would be categorized in abandonment. So clearly the Bible isn't saying, hey, if you're in an abusive uh, marriage relationship, um, you have to stay. That's not or or if there's some sort of abandonment, like they just like, you know, pack up and leave. I mean, clearly the Bible is is giving latitude and understanding to sort of these difficult situations. But Jesus here is particularly clear, and that's what we want to affirm, that there is only a narrow case in which we can find divorce as permissible. More than that, Jesus here goes after the practice of remarriage as well. Now, some Christians, conservative Christians, um, believe that remarriage is not permissible uh, after divorce. Only death is the only way that one could remarry. I am not of that persuasion. I, I believe that the Bible allows for remarriage in the cases of persistent sexual immorality. And, it, and, I, and I understand that from this particular passage. Because you see, it's assumed in Jesus' words. Look, what he, look at his words again. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In other words, it's assumed that this woman is going to remarry. And upon remarrying, she will commit adultery. And what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's teaching that remarriage is going to happen. And if you are complicit in this divorce, this this sort of no-fault divorce, then you are complicit in forcing her to commit adultery. Now, Jesus doesn't use language here, and this is where some have kind of gone a, a little astray, is it isn't persistent adultery. Here's what I mean. This morning, you're like thinking, okay, I had an unbiblical divorce and I remarried. Does that mean that I am... A, an adulterer, like persistently, like ongoing. That is not what Jesus says here. Jesus says that you have committed adultery and you need to confess that, but it's not that your marriage is now tainted and it can never be good and right and holy in God's eyes. 
So don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus here is going after those who are in sin in their marriage and who are are seeking to quickly uh, abandon them for any reason. And so as Christians this morning, what we want to think about as a church is, is that it's important that marriage was created by God to give us a picture of Christ and his bride. In other words, if, if we don't hold high marriage, then we don't hold high the church. That God's design for, for the family, that God's design for marriage was, was ultimately, as we heard in Ephesians 5, to point to the relationship that Christ had for his church. And so as a congregation, we want to pray that God would give us godly marriages in our congregation and in our lives. Um, we want to uphold those, even those who um, are widows or widowers who, who, who had godly marriages. We want to continue to uphold that faithfulness and that commitment, even in death. We want to pray that God would protect us from temptations that are inherent in marriage. Friend, the enemy loves, and, and that's why I love Sean's uh, prayer of confession, because it really hit on this point about hypocrisy in the church. You know, we're so quick to throw bombs at the world when, when our own house needs to be cleaned. The enemy loves to destroy the church through divorce. If you've ever been a part of a church um, that, that, that has a divorce that happens, it is not a pretty picture for the congregation, brothers and sisters. It, it, it affects far and wide. We want to pray and commit and pray for one another. Brothers and sisters, if, if you're not married this morning, perhaps you're a widow, widower, or, or you're a single uh, man or woman, uh, add to your prayer list praying for the married, married couples in this church. Pray for them. Pray. Know that, that temptations are out there, that the enemy wants to destroy marriages. Pray for us regularly. Pray that we would live godly lives and holy before the Lord. Pray that as a congregation, we would reflect the glory of God in Christ by seeking reconciliation in our relationships. That as Christians, we, we are reconcilers. In a couple of weeks, Pastor Rod is going to uh, uh, preach on uh, 2 Corinthians 5 on reconciliation. In a, in a godly worldview, godly men and women, we want to be reconcilers. We want to work towards peace and not division. And so we understand the Bible upholds marriage in the family, upholds it as a picture of Christ and the church. Friend, what is your understanding of this? How do you uphold the beauty of Christ and his church through the things we, we affirm and teach? This is what we want to do as a congregation. During the early part of the 20th century, uh, a man by the name of B.B. Warfield, he was a pr professor at Princeton University. Um, he was the foremost scholar on the Bible. He was a, um, a gifted teacher and communicator. And, and at the time at Princeton University, this was back when it was conservative, uh, they actually believed the Bible. Today they don't. Um, but back then they, they affirmed the Bible. But there, there had snuck into the university um, a number of liberal uh, scholars who had been influenced by journal, German liberalism. And they began to teach that the Bible wasn't the authoritative and, and infallible word of God. And they began to teach that 
um, that God's word uh, was, was, was kind of littered, littered with some of man's teaching. And B.B. And Warfield began to write and teach. He was, I mean, just a formidable force uh, in teaching. In fact, he helped steer uh, through his writings many uh, countless Southern Baptists uh, who were also drifting into liberalism. And, and he stood up against him. He spoke at conferences. He, he wrote books. But he never became famous outside of really the, the area there in Princeton. It was because the year he had married his wife, Anne Kincaid, they were out on their honeymoon, and when they were out, struck, she was struck by lightning and paralyzed her. And B.B. Warfield, though he was this world-renowned theologian and scholar, he wasn't able to fulfill his purposes, if you will, in academia. Because every day... As he would come to the lecture hall and lecture for a quick hour, he would run home back to his house to care for his wife. He would go back to the school and do some writing and then go back and care for his wife. All the while, he, he cared for her, loving her. He remained with her his entire life. You know, it's a reminder that, that marriage is a covenant commitment. You know, their marriage started off with her being paralyzed, never, never getting to enjoy what he had hoped was going to be his wife, but he was committed to her. He could have quickly abandoned her, but he stayed with her and loved her and cared for her, never leaving the house for more than a few minutes. The point that we need to understand is that are we committed to one another? Are we committed to our marriages? Are we committed to loving our wives as Christ has loved us? Are we committed to submitting to our husbands as we submit to Christ? Are we as a congregation going to be swept in the tides of moral revolution and change? Or are we going to submit to God's purpose and plan for our life and uphold God's design? That's what we want to affirm this morning what we want to seek and pray for. Let's pray now. Father, we pray this morning that you would be glorified in our lives. Father, we pray that, that as a congregation that we would stand upon your word and affirm the truth of your word. To affirm that marriage is a commitment for a lifetime. May we be guarded from the temptation to abandon our commitment. And this morning, if we have fallen in this area and and we have sought and successfully achieved a divorce, maybe because of our own sin, our own sexual immorality, or, or because, or maybe this morning we were the one who was offended. Father, may we come to Jesus and understand that Jesus died for sinners. He died to cleanse us from all of our sin and all of our unrighteousness. And that we are right only because of the death of Christ this morning. We affirm this. We ask for your forgiveness. We pray that you would be glorified in all that we say and do. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.